Losing Myself, a special podcast series celebrating 50 years of great composers at Wise Music. Presented by Jill Graham and Dave Holly. Welcome to Composing Myself. This week, Dave and I are joined by Dick Rudolph, songwriter, record producer, music supervisor, label executive, contributed to worldwide sales in excess of 30 million albums and loads of song placements in film, television and advertising. Welcome, Dick. Uh, it's great to see you and it's just exhausting reading that tiny wee bit about you. So God knows what it feels like being you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a, it's it's quite an interesting ride I've been on, I have to admit. But thank you. Thank you guys for having me. I'm honored. But I feel a bit like I did when uh when I was asked to come back to my university and be a guest lecturer and I said I'll be happy to, but what could I, what do you want me to talk about? <laughs> and they said, well the students would be quite interested in knowing how you chose your career path, which I thought was one of the funniest things, most hilarious things I did. <laughs> I'd heard, and uh, and here we are. Exactly. Well, we we've got we've got a I hope not too difficult question to start off with. Okay. Uh, and we tend to start off all of these these sort of chats with it. Is um, can you remember? Was there a moment when you were very young and you heard a piece of music for the first time that made you go, "Wow, that's amazing"? What was that? Huh. I, I have a couple answers to that. One was when I was very young. I, I was uh, born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, which was at that point not a, a great, I shouldn't say it wasn't very cultural, but my world was very small. You know, I was a little little boy before we moved to Miami Beach, and, and uh, which was also not a cultural uh, mecca at the time, although I don't know if it's considered to be now. Anyway. All my friends and family in Miami probably ate me already. But the, uh, <laughs> I did, I remember it, and so strange because, and, and I have to admit, I was listening to your, your wonderful podcast with uh, the great Rod Argent, and I, and I heard <laughs> the question. I was thinking, what did I, what did I hear? When did I first, I didn't understand it at the time, but I remember being a little kid, and I could remember lyrics to all these songs, which I didn't understand. And I'm talking about six, seven, eight years old, right? And, uh, and a friend of mine's mother heard me singing this one song and she said, what did you, how did you complain? And I said, I don't know, I just heard it. And in those days, there wasn't the kind of social media or coverage that we have. You know, there were only a, a couple television stations and a couple, I'm talking about in the 50s, you know? So, uh, the 1950s, in case anybody's paying attention. And they, uh, <laughs> they were, uh, so the, and she said, oh, I don't believe it. And I said, well, no, I just can listen to stuff. And she gave me this. She said, I want you to, here's the here's record. I'm going to play it for you once or twice. And I want you to tell me this, the lyrics. And it was, and I did. I remember, and I was trying to remember what that song was. And it was, and it turns out it was a Rosemary Clooney recording of a song 
I'm not sure what the name was, but it was, it had mangoes, papayas, chestnuts from the fire in my house. Do you know the song? I know the song. I don't know what it's called. Go Dave. <laughs> my house, come on, my, not come on in my house, something like that. But, and it was so crazy. I didn't, it didn't mean anything to me at the time, but years later, as I realized how much I loved the application of the English language to, to music, the musical forms, I realized that I had, you know, I had one thing and I feel so lucky that I had one thing that I could do that's kind of at the core of my, of all these other crazy things that you mentioned. I'm a songwriter and I'm a, and, and I love putting lyrics to music. It just makes me so happy. I'm so happy I found one thing in my life that I could do <clears throat> that uh, I can still do. And, uh, and actually I'm doing more than ever. It's pretty great. Gets me in all kinds of interesting situations with all kinds of talented people. But, but, but when you, so when you, my wife's got a thing. If she listens to a song through once, maybe twice, she's already got most of the words. You had that thing, did you? The same thing. Yeah, I have that thing, as they say, that thing. Yeah. I, I do. And, I, and also, the thing that I have, which I'm so lucky about, is it's like that, uh, you know that movie, was it Sixth Sense, the Bruce Willis movie where he says, yes. yeah, yeah. I see dead people. Well, that's what happens when I hear melodies. Yeah. Right? I, I see lyrics. I see concepts. I see what it's about. I can listen to this, you know, and we're in the studio all the time, and, and if I hear a passage or a melody or something like that, I just say, oh, I know what that's about. I was reading about you on the internet because that's what one can do oh these days. And um, I'll miss out some of the stuff I found. But you're from an Ju- interesting background, I think, the Jewish-Lithuanian descent. Was that a musical background as well? Because obviously Lithuania and its uh, heritage of folk music, et cetera, et cetera. Well, tell us about your mom and dad. Well, it's interesting because I didn't know anything about that. My mom and dad... Never told, never told us about our heritage before right. we came to America. And I didn't find that out until my daughter, Maya, uh, was on a show called Finding Your Roots, I think. Mm-hmm. And we found out that, uh, that we'd come from Lithuania and that we had, that our name before we got off the boat was, uh, was Rudashevsky. And I had, a, I had a great grandfather, a great grandfather named Wolf Rudashevsky. Oh, what a name. Yeah. And it was so funny because years ago, when uh, when Maya was born, we we set we stopped on our travels for her birth in Gainesville, Florida, which was a lovely little college town at the time in North Central Florida, and um, it was really great, very inexpensive place to live. It was a small college town then. That was the good news. The bad news was you couldn't make any money there. <laughs> I had all these jobs, and one of the jobs I had was. Uh, I was a sandal maker at the at Tuesday morning, the local head shop in town that was co-owned by Stephen Stills, Tuesday morning. Get it? And uh, I sold flowers and I had an all-around handyman. We will do or fix anything business. But I also had, I had all these jobs so that I could keep writing, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it wouldn't interfere when I wasn't working. And uh, the other thing I did was I was a DJ on the one FM station in town, WGVL. And my name on that was Little Wolf. I had no oh, idea sweet. I had a great-grandfather named Wolf. But uh, there you go, how funny things work out. As far as the musical stuff, I don't know. My mother was very musical and could uh-huh. sing. My father was a, was a Depression-era kid whose father passed away when he was very when he was just about to enter college, and he was the oldest of four siblings. 
So he had to drop out to go to work to support the family. So he was determined to keep me away from the arts that I would be a professional, a professional man, which he obviously didn't know me very well. <laughs> we had some great battles about that, but uh, it, it's amazing how circuitous the path is and how it ends up, you end up being where you're supposed to be, I guess. Yeah. So I don't know about the musical background, but I always love music. And, and and the early answer to your to your question, of course, I loved the early rock and roll. And of course, I was yeah. a young guy when the whole British invasion happened, and it was very influential on me. But I also loved, I remember being younger than that and hearing Ella Fitzgerald sing on the radio for the first time and thinking, this must be the most beautiful woman in the world. Because her voice was so gorgeous. And I still think she was one of the most beautiful women in the world. But I remember how deeply touched I was by her music and music like that. And uh, I always loved, I always loved uh, Brazilian music was a, was a big, big influence on me when I first heard the, all the Jobim stuff. That, uh, what, what kind of era wrote. would that have been, Dick? The, the Brazilian stuff? That was in the, that was in the um, like early 60s, right? So it's that girl from Ipanema. Type, type stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, Jobim is one of the great, yeah. great composers with a huge volume of amazing songs. Desafinado, One of the Samba, uh, Aguas de March, Waters of March. You know, just, it's insensitive. There's just, it goes on and on and on. Green, I always loved those changes and those, those chords. I didn't play any instruments when I was a kid. I was, you know... My father had some interesting thoughts on the subject. So, uh, but when did you start learning to play an instrument? Not until I was in college. I picked up a guitar and just learned the typical, you know, folk songs and things. But, but then I was lucky enough to meet this wonderful woman, young woman from South Africa, who was was uh, studying at the university. I was at Tulane University in New Orleans, and she taught me. Um, some of the altered chords and then I got a Mickey Baker mm. jazz guitar book and I was, I was off and running and the crazy thing was I can't sing at all and I couldn't sing then either and that's not to sing in my home and the case to drive everybody crazy but but uh, I I didn't like as soon as I would learn new chords or you know altered chords I would make up I'd start to make up songs as opposed to learning other people's songs that's what got me into this fine mess Ollie <laughs> uh, and how did you get, because how did you get, you, you, you worked at Chess Records, was that, well, or was it Chess Publishing? No, what it, it's, it's, an int- it's interesting, when I, when I got out of school, and after I was drafted out of law school, I went to law school to avoid, to attempt to avoid Vietnam. Yeah. Didn't work out as I planned, probably because I wasn't the best aspiring law student, but when I got out of that, <clears throat> I went to Chicago to work at a rock ballroom. A friend of mine, who I just saw the other day for the first time in many years, um, knew these guys who had a rock ballroom that was on the same circuit with the Fillmore East and West. There were five stops in the U.S. then. It was the Fillmore East and West, the uh, Electric Factory in Philadelphia, the Grandy Ballroom in Detroit, and the Electric Theater Kinetic Playground, which was owned by Aaron Russo in Chicago. And I ended, I went there to work as an assistant manager as a very young man, you know, like I think I just was turning, I was still 21 maybe. And, uh, and I ended up managing the place. And, and those shows were like, this was a converted bowling alley and the shows would be 
Led Zeppelin, Santana, Joe Cocker and the Grease Band opening, and we would turn the house over to it. It was amazing, crazy yeah. thing. And uh, until it was burned down. <laughs> was there a story behind that? Oh, yeah, there's a great story behind that. Um, but I don't know if I should tell you. <laughs> it had to do with um, people who were running it had raised money from um, family and friends. I mean, nobody could prove this is what happened. Yeah. But uh, they, it's, it is a fascinating tale. And uh, the deal was that anything that accrued from that business and entertainment, the investors would have a sizable portion of. And then when one of the principals started to get all kinds of great action, he thought, I'm not sharing this. How do we get out of this? Okay. So anyway, I was, uh, I was in Chicago and I had, and I was fortunate enough to have met one of the great loves of my life, Minnie Riverton Dan. And uh, so we were, we were uh, together, we were living together. And I, I had a dream one night about a song, which I woke up and wrote. I actually dreamed a song. And that wow. song was, was come to my garden. And I played it, I played it for Minnie. And she said, well, this is great. Can you put it down? I said, I can't, but you can. And at that time, we just had the greatest technological advance in the history of mankind, which was a cassette recorder. <laughs> <laughs> You could push two buttons and record your song. You didn't have to get money to go make a demo or anything. It was fabulous. And so I, I think I got her to sing the song right, as I played guitar. And, and that was it. So I didn't know she took it to her producer at Chess Records, who was the great Charles Stepney. Who, uh, and then she said to me one day, Charles wants to, uh, Charles wants to, to see you. This is great. Uh, Charles was a brilliant, brilliant man, great producer and, and composer and arranger at Chess, who produced everything from the Dells to Ramsey Lewis, Minnie's group, The Rotary Connection, which is where Earth, Wind & Fire came from, Maurice White being the studio drummer at Chess and the drummer on the Rotary Connection albums. Uh-huh. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. And of course, you know, Earth, Earth Wind & Fire first had a woman singing when they were signed to... Uh, Warner Brothers, which didn't work out so well. They had him doing mini, they had him doing mini parts, and then they went to Columbia and got Philip Bailey to sing the high parts. Yeah. That worked out okay. Anyway, yeah. Charles good. and I, who <laughs> that's the way of the world, as you guys probably know. I, you see, his catalog is here because I took, uh, I went to Chicago, I took Barry Edwards there and introduced him to Charles's widow and family and stuff. That's how we got him. Anyway, the, um, so he said to me, did you, he said, I like this, I like this song. I, I think I want to record it. And me and my brilliance said, I don't think you can. He said, why not? And I said, well, I don't have a publisher. He said, well, kid, you are as stupid as you look. And I said, <laughs> I've, heard I've heard that before from my father several times. So he said, why don't you just start your own publishing company, which is how I got here and got this nice hoodie. And um, we, uh, so he said to me, did you write these lyrics too? I said, yeah. And he said, can you write? lyrics to other people's melodies and I said, yeah, <laughs> you know, at that point, any, any, you know, any opening, right? He said, okay, well, here's something. And he gave me this wonderful little cassette that he had played in his basement that had piano and vibes and melodica on it. And uh, I took it off. At that point, the theater had burned down. I was driving a, uh, a preschool van. I was a, you know, nursery school bus driver. Bus driver. <laughs> and let me keep the, 
they let me keep the van and it was great because I could write songs and they'd pick the kids up, drop them off and I could keep the van. So I would take the van to the lakefront and sit there and write, you know, try to write the lyrics. So I called Charles up. I said, I, I got it. I think I got this first one. This song was called Le Floor. And he said, oh, bring it in. Let's see. So I can remember him sitting there at the piano and looking at the lyrics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let me see. This is the flower singing the song, he says. And I said, yeah. <laughs> this is good. He said, uh-huh. I'm thinking he's going to say, get the hell out of here. But he finally goes, okay. And there's a seed inside. Yeah, okay, great. And um, yeah, okay, great. Here's some more songs about the road. Right. And that's what got me started. So I started writing with Charles, who was my first adult male mentor. And how lucky I was to have him. I thought, this guy's pretty hip. He's very old. But he seems to be pretty hip. He was at least 35 or 36 at the time. Very old. For an old guy, he seems, he <laughs> seems pretty, pretty cool. But that's how I got it. So I wasn't, I was writing for, and I wrote very Connection stuff, and, and Minnie's, you know, probably most of that Come to My Garden album with Charles. You know, I'd say probably six or seven of the songs. Anyway, that's, uh, and that's how I got started. But were you actually a kind of a house writer at chess? Or you just work no, with Charles? No, I was just, I was, because I was, I had my own publishing company by that time, yeah. which, which many had named, the brilliant name, Dickie Bird Music and Publishing Company. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> and so I, so I, you know, I, I had a job. I was driving a bus, you know. I didn't mean to, to sell my publishing. So anyway, I was very lucky that uh, just kind of very, serendipitous the way those things go. And then I started writing on stuff. I had another great friend when I was younger than that. And I was, when I was in Boston, there was a great guy named Bert Malatesta, who was a lovely man. And he was a great, he was a teacher at the universities there and stuff. He was a great jazz aficionado and he turned me on to all this great music, Bill Evans and so many wonderful, wonderful, wonderful composers and mm. such great music. And uh, so I was lucky to meet a couple of people along the way that uh, that really kind of opened my ears and eyes. And I, so I started writing and thought, well, I, I can write. And I, so when we were in Gainesville and I was doing all those things uh, after we left Chicago, because the funny thing about it is that album, that Minnie's uh, Come to My Garden album, never really had a chance to reach, you know, it was, it was not a major distribution. And at that moment, Chess was bought by a company, a Canadian company called GRT, I believe. And it was, and they brought in a very interesting man that you may have heard of to run it, named Morris Levy. Oh. <laughs> oh, yes. And so what he did, did you ever see Wall Street? So he started selling this thing out. He couldn't care less about this thing. And I think Come to My Garden was the first release on there, and it just went the way of all flesh. So the amazing thing is that these songs have not only endured, but have just, I mean, I just, I just, just yesterday approved this great dance remix of La Fleur. Oh, wow. By, by uh, Tim, the great Timmy Regisford, who I found out is the brother of a dear friend of mine. And uh, I knew Timmy when he was, he's a big, you know, DJ and uh, dance mixer around the world. And uh, I knew him for years, Timmy Regisford, until I found out his real name, which was Ricardo Rudolph Regisford. And ah. I 
many people know me as Ricardo too. Many people know me by many names. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Wu and Double R and Dick. And last <laughs> night I was leaving a restaurant. Uh, my wife and I were leaving. We were walking out in the Pacific Palisades. And so we were walking back to the car. I heard this voice on this way, Papa, Papa. And I go, I turn around. And when someone calls me Papa, I know. It's, it's usually a young woman. I said, were we in mommy and me class together? Because every time my daughter would have was pregnant, I would be taking the, the next youngest child to mommy and me class. You know, <laughs> if her husband was working or whatever. So I know all these people who think my name is Baba. You, the, you were the mother. You know, yeah. Who think that's, you know, that's what the kids call their grandfather's Baba. So Baba. I'm a lot of things. But yeah, it's pretty crazy. How do you choose who to write with or for? Does it come to you or do you go out and find people that you really, really want to collaborate with? Is it a mixture? You know, when you say that, I think I'm an idiot. I should be doing that. But what happens is they just kind of, <laughs> kind of uh, the Japanese have an expression that says, Tanakata Botomochi, which means um, the fat rice cake falls from the shelf or good things fall from heaven. And it's been amazing like that as I, as I was... T- saying just before, maybe before you guys got on, got on I, I'm lucky to work with all these great young people and they, and they just kind of find me and, and um, like I get calls. I got called not long ago at 10, 15 at night from one of my friends and writing partners at the studio over here in Santa Monica and says, hey man, what are you doing? And I said, what do you think I'm doing here? He goes, you gotta come over. This guy's here. He's a great singer, songwriter. You gotta come over and meet him. I go, hey, Adam, you know, it's like 10, 15. Says, come on, man. This guy really wants to meet you. I said, great. I go over there. I come, we, I, we write a song. You know, I'm just gonna come over to meet him. We end up writing this great song. He's a great R&B writer, phenomenal singer. who's had some big hits with uh, K-pop hits and stuff. Fabulous guy. In fact, um, Oscar, you know, in our sync department just, submitted one of our songs for this big movie. And uh, I started writing with him, and another time he called me up. This It was 6.15 at this time. This was better in the evening. What are you doing? I said, I'm slicing the daikon for our sashimi dinner. What do you think I'm doing? And he goes, this woman's here. She's a great singer. I said, I'll go with him over for a minute. Because it's only like eight minutes from my house, the studio, which is ah. great. The office, the house, and the studio are all here in Santa Monica. So I, I go over there and I meet this fabulous singer-songwriter from Texas named Melissa Polinar. She's a wonderful writer. She's written with India Ari and Jeremy Passion. She's great. I love this woman. And I started, and they had a song up. And I said, oh, I, I, it was one of those ones where I went, oh, this is, uh, what was it? I, I think I hear the, the hook here. And uh, they said, well, let's, what is it? And I think it was wrapped up. Wrapped up in you, I think it was it was called. And uh, they said, uh, 
well, let, let's write. And I said, I've got to go home for dinner. And said, well, we'll go eat. Can you come back? And we came back at like nine, nine o'clock and wrote the song. And I've been writing with her ever since. I just wrote a couple gorgeous songs with her when I was in Japan in, for cherry blossom season. And she'll send me these great things. She plays guitar and sings in such beautiful, mellifluous voice, gorgeous harmonies. And I'll walk around the river, the Sumidagawa, and just play this stuff in my head and, uh, and write the songs. It's great. And do you send her a tape back? Is that how it works? Or not a tape? We, we do, we do this. Past cassette tapes, but yeah. We, we do this, usually. We, you yeah. know, we, I write a lot of songs. I do a lot of sessions this way. On, across know, across on, Zoom or Teams or whatever. Yeah, yeah on the world. And when I was in Japan, last time I had a, a session with, a three-way session with a guy in New York and a guy in Holland. We had all those timelines lined up. We wrote a song and write with people here in New York. And Daniel Jobim, who's uh, Antonio Carlos Jobim's grandson in Brazil, is one of my dear friends, and we write together. Yeah. Get him over here. And, but I do, I just meet people. It's so amazing. You want to hear another story? Yeah. Seriously? Okay. Yep. So I, I, this is, I this is great little Italian restaurant in the neighborhood called Locando Portofino that one of my dear friends uh, is, the, is one of the owners. And it's, it's kind of like, uh, it's, it's, it, it's just this wonderful place. I don't know if you ever saw Cheers. Yeah. Or, um, you know, or it's, it's a Japanese movie called Tampopo about a, yeah. a noodle shop. Right? Yeah. Okay, so this is like Tampopo. And, and so I stop there in the morning all the time. It's like my neighborhood place. We, I knew him for five years in our martial arts class. I didn't know anything about him. And then we bought a house right by his restaurant. And I've been to his wedding in Italy and stuff. His dear friend, Alberto Ferrari, uh, whose father's name was Enzo Ferrari. But not that Enzo Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> he was a great guy, and he had cards made up Enzo Ferrari that he would give <laughs> to all the young women. But he was quite a character. Anyway, um, we so there's, and I know all these characters. I stop off for cappuccinos on the way to the office. It's right between my house and the office, and, and I'm over there all the time with this guy. And it's just so it's behind the scenes when it's not open. It's when the great stuff happens, and you meet all these characters. And he has, there's people from around the world that have found their way to Locondo Portofino. And one of them is this wonderful man named Momo, who is, in biblical times, he would have been a giant, right? He's a giant. He's a huge, not just tall, not just a huge man. Very sweet, very kind. Except there's, he looked like a Serbian axe murderer. And he... <laughs> And you never want to get him upset, right? He's a dear friend of mine. And so he's and he's always coming up with these great business ideas that are multi-billion dollar ideas. That's what the B billion is. And Richard, you're going to be it's success entertainment. You're you're the CEO of the music division. I am Momo. <laughs> you don't want to say what are you? I don't because you could just crush your head like a little eggshell if it's <laughs> so you think. Okay, Momo, we'll just wait for this stuff to pass. But one day he, he says, Richard, there's this major guy in the music business. You have to meet. He's a major guy. I, I'm sure you know him. I go, sure, Momo, whatever. And then one day he calls me up in the morning and says, I'm at Lokandu with having coffee with this major guy. I want you to come meet him. Okay. So I stop and have coffee. And he's in there with this very nice-looking young man. I don't know it's his Bentley convertible parked in front, but he says, yeah, he just came back from Brazil. His name's Major. That's why he's a major guy in the, in the music industry, right? And uh, he says, uh, do you, uh, 
he just came back from Brazil and, and he said he just had this song that had 250 million views on the on the uh, video in the first two weeks. And I timidly said, you don't mean 250 million views. Do you mind with like 250? No, 250 million. Okay. And it was. And, and he was in the video and wrote the thing. He said, what do you do, man? I said, hey, you know, I write. What do you write? And I said, well, you know, I love Brazilian music and I love to take the changes and put contemporary beats on them, you know, like change, you know, in, integrate them with contemporary music. He said, that's a great idea. I love Brazilian music. We should write together. People always say that we should write together. It's a long answer to your question. And you always go, yeah, okay, but it has to be right, as you yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you understand. But, but do, so, uh, do musicians say to each other, we must write together in the same way that I say to people, yeah, we must do lunch, but we never do. <laughs> that often happens. That often happens. And, because, and you know, you're, you're reluctant because you, you can get into a situation, and if it doesn't fit, and you know today there's all these things where people say, you, uh, you know, they have these writing sessions, and, and these writers go to three, four sessions a day, and they're, and they're parsing out their percentage and they're fighting over, you know, so I feel that's not comfortable for me. I don't feel like you're doing it for the right reasons. If you're writing together and, and you say something that becomes a catalytic agent and leads to a better part, you say, well, that's my line. That's your, you know, that's silly, yeah. you know, but again, a lot of, to me, that's silly, but I don't denigrate it because that's how a lot of people work and I just can't do that. But so this guy says to me, Oh, we, we should write. I say, great. So a few days later, he calls me up. He said, hey, this is Major. I, I, have an, I have a track based on your idea. Do you want to hear it? And I go, sure. What idea was that? He says, <laughs> you know, the, the Brazilian stuff with the beats. I said, okay. He said, I'll send it over. So he sends me this track. And it doesn't have melody or lyrics. And so I come up and said, it's a nice track. Do you have a melody idea? Do you want me to work on something? He said, give me a minute. So three days later, he calls me up and he said, hey, I got this... Uh, I got this idea for Melody. Can I come over and play it for you? I said, sure. So he come over and he puts his phone on my desk and he said, um, I had my friend uh, Justin sing the Melody I did. You want to hear it? I said, yeah. Justin who? He said, Bieber. <laughs> okay. So they, they, they said, well, that's, that's good. I liked it. He said, do you? I said, yeah. He said, do you want to write lyrics? I went, okay. And so I said, okay, so it's great. So I, write, I said, I better write something good for you. So I called him up. I, I said, oh, I got something great. I called him up and I said, Major, I got this thing. It's, I think it's really cool. Do um, you want to get together and, uh, and work on it? He said, well, let's just go record it. Said, okay. So we go in the studio and we record it. And this happens all the time, these guys. And fortunately for me, I think, I'm, I don't want to sound arrogant or anything, but I may have more literary references and, than a lot of the people that I work with. And, you know, I... It's kind of what I do. And it's great. It's a great thing for me. <laughs> I love it because they don't want to think about this stuff. And I, so I get to work with all these great young people who are younger than my kids, much younger. Yeah. And, uh, and it's fun. It just keeps me going. I have so many things and so many great projects now. And it's, and it's just, you know, like all the things you read, these things, that I don't know what I do, all the different things that have come from it, but I'm working on all these different wonderful creative projects now because for the last several years I've looked at our business and said the future of it is cross-pollination of the media that we need other platforms because if you obviously if you write a song and put it on Spotify (laughs) 
there's 60,000 other songs a day going up on there. I know that you need something. And so it's led me into all these wonderful creative endeavors that are so, that are much more uh, far reaching than the stuff you read about, Jill. So it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, I think part of that is your, um, we need to talk about Mini. You know, I think, you know, the love, one of the loves of your life and, uh, you know, reading about you know, Stevie Wonder and you producing Perfect Angel. The second oh. album, yeah. Yeah, no. the second album. How, and you, How did you get Stevie involved? Yeah. It's a great story. We, we, came, we came to, uh, we were in Gainesville and the guy who was the uh, uh, creative uh, vice president of Epic Records at the time, heard about us from their college rep, heard that Minnie was in Gainesville, Florida. And the guy came out to the radio station to visit Little Wolf and said, you're married to Minnie Rupert and she's here in town tonight. So we had made a, a, uh, a little demo tape. I don't think we had made it. He didn't hear that yet, but we had, we had made a little demo tape and I would, that's where I wrote Loving You and these things by the little duck pond there in the midst of all my different business endeavors and uh and all the songs on on that album pretty much and the uh so don ellis flew down to gainesville and sat on the floor with us and we played him these songs and he you know gave her a contract and said and and then we came out to to uh, la we didn't know anybody or anything and, and said who do you want to produce you and then he said stevie wonder who at that time was the hottest you know, this was yeah. after Intervisions and Talking Book. And mm. It's in the middle of that five or six album run that's... Amazing. The greatest. So everybody went <laughs> and said, asked the question, you did, how are you, you going to get Stevie Wonder? Um, Minnie had met Stevie back in Chicago at something, and she and they had, they had recorded one of his songs on the Rotary Connection album. But anyway, we didn't know it that he was a fan of it. So now we're out at this little house in, in, uh, in Laurel Canyon uh, mm. where we're staying. And this guy comes over who was a friend of Minnie's manager. I think his name was Alfie Schweitzer. I'm pretty sure that was his name. And he said the same thing. What are you doing? And who do you want to produce? And Stephen Murray said, oh, I used to be his agent. I used to walk him on. I was the guy that would walk him on stage to the microphone. Really? He said. Amazing. He said, I think I can get him on the phone. I think I can get him on the phone. And he goes to the phone and he calls him. He said, I think he's in the studio. And he was at the record plant at the time, the old record plant. And he goes, hi, this is Alfie Schweikin for Steve. Wonder. Hey, Steve, how you doing? Yeah, I listen, I know this sounds crazy, but I'm up here in Laurel Canyon with this artist um, named Minnie Ripperton. What? What? Okay, hold on a second. He said, he wants to talk to you. Minnie picks up the phone. Hey. She says, uh-huh, what, where? Okay, okay, bye. I said, what happened? She said, he wants me to come to the studio. <gasps> so we took her down to the studio and dropped her off. And I don't know how many hours later she called up and she said, can you come down here? And I went, sure. So I go down there and she said, Stevie, I want you to meet my old man. And he takes my hand, right? We shake, I go to shake his hand, takes my hand and holds it for about 20 minutes while we're talking, just holds it. And uh, somehow or another, we said, uh, look, you know, and many told him I, the whole story, and I and I don't want anybody else but you to do this, right? And he goes, he was under contract at Motown, obviously, and he said, you know, I can't, 
they, they would kill me, but let's do it. He said, but I'll only do it. And, and we played him the songs, you know, so we went over to where we stayed and first we played him all the songs. I was playing guitar, it was ridiculous. And because uh, I'm not much of a player, but he could cover that up. And so we go, um, he said, I'll do it, but you, you know, you, if you'll do it with me, to me, right? <laughs> Okay. And so we and so we came up with a, a production. I, I, I everything he did, I called him uh, El Toro Negro because he was the black bull, right? So I came up with El Toro Negro, and uh, he um, from my days in in Miami, La Playa de Miami, from mis hermanos cubanos. We um, we uh, and, he, and and our production company was called Scoreboo Productions because he was a Taurus and. And Minnie and I were Scorpios, right? So, Scorboo. Uh, okay. Scorboo, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so that's what happened. It was just one of those things, unbelievable. And we would go to the studio every night and wait for him to show up and make music. And and the stu- and Loving You is, a, is probably something that you would ask about. How did it happen? We recorded that song like three or four times and never could get it right. And Stevie said, finally, let's let's listen to the original demo, which we had made in Gainesville, Florida. Right. And when we made it, we had we we so he said, let's you know, let's do it this way, the way we had done it, which was just me playing guitar. But and Michael Sambello had just joined the group as a Wonder Love as a guitarist, who's a brilliant guitarist who you know came to fame doing maniac years later, but he played on contusions and all this thing. He's just amazing, amazing artist, amazing person. He had just had carpal tunnel surgery on his left hand, so he couldn't play acoustic guitar. So who do you think they got to play guitar? But it wasn't that easy. They put me in the studio with a click track, right? And I'm trying, and I'm playing the guitar. And Stevie and Minnie are in the control room talking in my head, trying to get me to, to break, right? And I can't repeat the things that they were saying, but I, it, was, it took me so long to record this song. It was just incredible. But fortunately, um, Steve covered it up with these two gorgeous Fender Rose parts that are just yeah. brilliant. And we listened to it. We said, something's still missing. So that's we said, listen, listen, what's the original demo? Let's hear it. And when we had recorded it in Gainesville, when Maya was a baby in her swing matic that's why she goes, Maya, Maya. Yeah, yeah. at the end. Yeah. She, uh, we, I guess the window was open and there was a bird singing outside the studio. Mm. So Steve said, get the bird. <laughs> and so the whole thing happened. But that, that record almost never came out because the record label didn't want to release it because she was a black artist and there was no bass and drums on it. So yeah. it can't be done. It, it did quite well, though. Yeah, well, yeah. What, what was that experience like? It must have been a whoosh, was it? Because that, that went number one all over the world, I think. No, it really was. And it was, an, it was a whoosh, to say the least. It was uh, quite an experience. And, and it taught us a lot. It certainly taught me a lot about energy and about the world. And when you have all that energy directed at you from everywhere, you know, it's, it's a tangible thing and it does affect you. It really does. People, I don't think people are aware of it. We look at all the people that are in the limelight. Who, we look at some of them who have a really rough time, you know, living and being themselves. And, and I understand it. It's, it's not just the adulation and the, everybody telling you you're great, but it's also all that energy. 
it's it's a real thing. So it was a very interesting experience. I remember George Harrison saying he, he, the Beatles gave their nervous systems to the world. They were just really? fried by all that energy and screaming and yeah. attention. Yeah. And like I was saying, Loving You obviously has done very well. And, and but I was saying before about the stuff from... Uh, from the Come to My Garden album, those songs somehow endured. Mm. Even though they never had that kind of release. And, and LaFleur, as you guys well know, I mean, it's been the end title in what was it, Us, the Jordan Peele film. Yeah. Made a deal for it with Nike for Air Jordans. We just made a huge commercial. So all of, and, and it just keeps getting used and used and just keeps growing and growing and growing. And there's other songs like that from that era too. They're, they're almost bigger now than they were then. Oh, they're Because you've got... Hard. Because you've got people who heard them at the time, who still love them, and every generation adds more people. You know, my kids listen to them. It's yeah. amazing to me. And it's all that, and, you know, it's very, I guess we're very fortunate, too, that the hip-hop generation discovered it and sampled all, all of our songs. It's kind of like a who's who of, uh, of that world who sampled these songs. You know, it's... That, as you know, we don't go out asking people to do it. It's just, and when it first happened, I didn't understand it at all. Don't they want to play it themselves? But no. (laughs) (laughs) Can can I ask you about one particular collaboration? Um, Because he's from my hometown of Grimsby in England, the north of England. Ron Temperton. How did you hook up with him? I was talking about Ron yesterday. I miss him so much. He was one. I didn't know you were from Grimsby. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Rod used to say, uh, I'm the second most famous person from Grimsby, the captain of the QE too. <laughs> he was the most, I was just talking about him yesterday, I was talking to my brother about him, I miss him so much. He was such a brilliant, wonderful man. And the way it happened was just, If you, did you ever get to know Rod? Did you meet him? No, no, we just... He was before I got the him. loveliest, most wonderful, down-to-earth, sensible, brilliant person you could imagine. And he... I was I was um, producing the Manhattan Transfer, and uh, I thought, boy, this case would be. And I mean, it's a departure for them, but this would be a brilliant guy to write for them. And and uh, I called up a friend of mine, was it Brenda Andrews, who was at A and M or Almo Publishing, and she said, "Oh, yeah, Rod's on a, on a ski holiday in Switzerland. Give him a give him a bell." Oh, okay. <laughs> Gave me a number. I called him up and I introduced myself and said, dude, he said, yeah, mate. He says, I'll tell you what, I'm, uh, I'm on holiday now. And, uh, but when I'm back in Worms, Germany, where he was living. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> really? His story is unbelievable. If, yeah. That's a whole nother podcast. His, his story, how he became who he was, is unbelievable. I, I could talk to you for hours about him. Well, he used to be a fish filleter, didn't he? You know, he just finished his levels and he, he got it, you know, he answered, he, he was a drummer, but somebody got, or he was, there was one band in town and he was in it. And then yeah. somebody got, he, he said, I got to get out of here. And so he answered the first ad he found in Melody Maker for a keyboard player at a strip bar in, in, uh, I think, Hamburg. <laughs> he got on a train and went. And he locked himself in every night and after they would close up and he would study all the songs on the jukebox that what made a hit song. And he would learn them all. 
And then when they'd come in in the morning to clean up, they'd let him out and go home and go to sleep. That's how he learned to do all this stuff. And then when he got as far as he could with that stuff, he said, I'd like to learn English R&B, American R&B music. And he answered another ad for a, a band from Dayton, Ohio, that was at an Air Force base in Germany that was looking for a keyboard player arranging heat wave. And he went there and... And then wrote, that, wrote some of the biggest hits. Yeah. Well, he wrote them all. Always yeah. and forever. Uh, Boogie Nights, Groove Line, Ain't No Half Steppin', you know, everything. And, and everything that, that Quincy did between... And, and the same thing with Quincy. That's how Quincy met me, called him up and said, do it. So when I called Rod up and I said, do this, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll demo some, write some songs and demo them up and I'm coming over there to do some work with Quincy and if you like the songs, we'll record them. And that's how I met him. He was, he was the best. He understood the balancing things and, and he, and I mean, he wrote the whole thing, the whole arrangement, all the horn parts, the rhythm tracks, the background, about everything. And he was so interesting because he didn't write the lyrics until he knew what, what the, who the, the artist was. So you probably know that Thriller was, was called Starlight. Oh, I didn't know that. No. <laughs> starlight night. The stars are shining bright because the stars are out tonight. It's the starlight. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of changed the song quite a bit, yeah. But, you know, he, he was brilliant. He was brilliant and such a lovely down-to-earth man. He could under... He could understand the balance and things and the right and wrong and stuff. So, yeah, I was very fortunate to, to get to know him and work with him. We, we did a few things together. Yeah, across the that. 80s, it looks like there was quite a lot of things. With, yeah. with Bruce Swedian as well? Yeah, yeah that was, uh, yeah, he, he knew him. For, that, was, that was Quincy's producer, uh, arranger, um, sorry, engineer. And yeah. Rod and we were very close, so we did a bunch of stuff with Bruce Swedian, who was brilliant also. Yeah, I've been very fortunate to meet some... Very, very talented people and get to work with them. Pretty lucky. And still pretty lucky. Yeah. And you also, um, you know, you were talking about the, the different destinations for music now. And, you, you know, you've got a great career as, you know, producing and supervising film music. What do you enjoy about that? Um, now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've evolved kind of that. The music supervision thing was very interesting because I thought at the time, this was a while ago, mm. and, I, and I, I thought, what a great thing to put music and film and stuff. Of course, there are many moving parts and many people that you oh, have yes. to on that. So it's not always quite what you think it's going to be. But I did get to do a lot of really cool things and write a lot of songs for film and do it. And I had some great experiences there, too. But what I'm doing now is when I was talking about the cross-pollination is so much more interesting. I'm looking for uh, and creating, not just looking for, but creating um, film and television streaming projects that are music infused. Um, for example, I, mm. I, wrote, uh, I met a young, uh, an artist from, uh, who's a big star in Italy named Lola Ponce. She's sung with Bocelli and mm -hmm. fabulous. Yeah, yeah. She was here and we, we hit it off. And we, this is before COVID. We started writing together and we took her in the studio and recorded a few songs. And uh, and then, and she lives in San Miguel de Allende. Have you ever been there? No, I've heard it's amazing. Amazing. Fabulous place in Mexico. And it's a really enchanted place. And so we, uh, I went down there and she's married to a wonderful man named Caron Diaz, who's a great uh, Telemundo novella actor. Okay. 
They're beautiful people. If you look them up, Lola Ponce, P-O-N-C-E, and Arun Diaz, you're going you're gonna to hate them at first because they're so beautiful. That's but annoying. They're, they're so, <laughs> but, but you get over it because they're so beautiful and charming, and they're great people. And uh, so, like, she had some people that were working that were supposed to gonna manage her. I just, uh, she... Then they said, these songs are great. Let's, let's put them out. I said, great. What's the plan? They said, well, we'll put them on Spotify and see who buys it. That's not a plan. So I went down there to uh, see if they said, maybe we'll do an EP. And I thought maybe we can create a story for a video for them and ended up writing this whole story who then I then said, well, this needs to be a screenplay. So mm -hmm. I said to her, this wonderful young woman who's an indie filmmaker and director, who's very new, has a great, musical background as well. <clears throat> can you can you tell me how to write a screenplay? <laughs> sure, I'll be happy to and to tell me how to do this stuff. And I said, okay, here's how you write the beat sheet. And I started and then I went back to him and said, there is no effing way I can write this. <laughs> can I pay you to do it? She said, no, but I'll write it with you. Like, sorry. So we wrote it, it took us a year because she was making three other films in this time. And, uh, <clears throat> And it's all imbued with music, all different kinds of ways to do a musical. Uh, John Carney's one of my inspirations, the way he made, mm. um, you know, the, the film, what's the name of the film that was such a big, uh, such a big hit and became a hit on Broadway with the two Irish folk singers, uh, Once. Once, yeah. yeah. And then he also made uh, Sing Street. Have you ever seen that? No. no. Oh, please. You need to do it. This guy, he made once for 130,000 pounds. Is that all? Cranky. Yes. So, and wow. he, it's so wonderful the way he tells stories and imbues it with music. It's not My Fair Lady. It's not, you know, a West Side Story, but it's, it's great. So anyway, I, I was thinking, you can do this stuff if you know what you're doing and if you mm. can create music and this stuff. So we're doing that. We wrote this gorgeous thing and we're doing that with the two of them in San Miguel de Allende, and since then I've got three other projects that, uh, two other film projects that are music-driven, music-imbued, and, and, uh, and a streaming show that we're very close to making a deal for, and because I need places to put the music. I'm not just going to, and things to write for, I'm not just mm -hmm. going to throw them out there and hope. And hope, yeah. And I think creating work that has music that is telling and fulfilling the emotional points and the narrative points, there's nothing more beautiful than that. And although they're not actually telling the story, they are amplifying what you're seeing. So great. And you're so right. Like yeah. at once, you know, it's just, I mean, what a film. Yeah. Oh, my God. Right? And it's not what you would imagine. It's not a romance. It's just such a beautiful, it's such great. And how music, look, I, I had to deal with this quite a bit with certain film projects where I was music supervising where they would pay lip service to the music up front, they, the executives or producers, whatever, who won't name names. And then you get to the end of post-production they've spent the music budget and they say, I can give a guy $10,000 and they'll do it in his bedroom. I don't need the real horror. And, and, you should, and, and you should get, you too should do the entitled film for nothing. It'll be good for their career, the entitled song. I'm sure this is what they've been waiting for. They wait all night for calls like these. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, it's interesting. Another really interesting thing that I fell into is I met these two brilliant uh, brothers uh, during COVID. 
started me right before COVID, and then we became friends, and they started their own comic book company. Uh, and we we started a division of the company for to make manga, to make graphic novels for musical artists. Mm-hmm. The manga, which you, if you have a big enough following, you can sell quite a bit of these. The manga, as the Japanese graphic novels are known as, um, sell for quite a bit of money, and they can become so many other things. They can become films. They can become anime. The biggest anime in the world is from a manga in Japan called Demon Slayer. They've sold over a hundred million books and counting. What? Yeah. Wow. It's the biggest anime in the world. Mm. It can become video games. It can become all this stuff. So you can, and it's great for the careers. And so people said, well, you're going to need some big artists to do this. And everybody was waiting to see what we would do. So we said, okay, let's get some big artists. The, the company's called Headshell. Do you know what the headshell is on a on the arm of a record player? It's the end of the arm where the components, the needle and components are. It's called that. Oh, okay. And so it's called Headshell Books. And we started off with some bands you may have heard of. Uh, Metallica, Def oh. Leppard, Beach Boys. You went a few through, people. Yeah, it's, it's, we, and some really good ones that I sh- won't mention yet, but that are, were signed. It's great. It's fabulous, and it opens up all kinds of doors, and there's all kinds of things you can do with it. And it's and it's not just they have to. It's not just a, a graphic novel about the band. It could be there's like three buckets. You can do it about the band. It can be based on the music, about the and, album. You know, prog yeah. rock could live again. There you go. Uh, the Def Leppard uh, first uh, manga is called Hysteria. Surprise. Amazing. And, uh, or it could be any, about anything they want. They tell any story they want. It's just that their fans, as we know, are desperate to have something tangible that they can hold and connect to again since they can't buy albums and liner notes and all those things. Well, it's so gone full circle. Well, the world keeps turning. And fortunately for me, I, I like to turn, I like to keep turning in it because the other way doesn't seem to be working so well. <laughs> I think also that a friend of mine produced the stage show of My Neighbor Totoro. Um, wow. You know, and even just taking that from anime into a live stage show, you know, it, I mean, you can't go wrong, can you? No. Incredible. And look, we're, we're not reinventing the wheel. Disney no. kind of figured this out a exactly. while ago. Exactly, yeah. Hello, yeah. come on. It just goes on and on and on. Yeah, and, but, you know, that coming from, you know, the Far East where there is not, you know, the tradition of musical, you know, canto pop and no opera, you know, but then bringing that genre into something very... Well, it was produced in Europe, very Western. It's just the most beautiful gelling of ideas. It's exactly, amazing. Right? Yes. So it's not like we're, oh, we're up against it. The business has changed. We have nowhere to go. I think we have everywhere to go. They say, Loads. you know, one door closes or several doors close, but the whole universe <laughs> opens, right? And, that's and, you, and you just have to have the courage, right? To say, in my right. belly, I know this is going to work. Right. That's how it's always been, right? The people who are willing to take the chances. And, you know, they always tell us, you, uh, well, that's not, the, that's not the way it's done. We, we don't do it. That's not how it's done. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Watch us. <laughs> yeah. So it's good. It's exciting to me. And, uh, and like I say, I keep falling on things. And, and also, I'm lucky because I'm here. And I just, the, the, I came back from Japan and 
And Oscar told me, oh, he sent me an email. There's this art, artist from Australia, Bex, who wants to write with you. And I came back and uh, I met her and we went to the studio the next day and we wrote this fabulous song. And we're trying to get her back to do more. It's a killer. It's going to be an anthem. If, if this were a Dua Lipa, it would already be number one. It's fabulous. Wow. I'll send it to you. We're almost done mixing. With the yes, do. Yeah. So, best part of breaking up. It's good. I think, I think talking about breaking up, I, I think it's probably time for us to break up. Dick, you have been an absolutely wonderful Perfect. guest on this. Thank you so You're much. So Fascinating. I feel like we've only scratched the surface. Of yeah. it. episode of Composing Myself has been brought to you by Wise Music Group. Thanks for listening. <laughs>